Good morning, church family. I just want to say welcome, and I want to invite you, if you would, to, to take out your Bibles and turn them on and take them out and join me, if you will, in Mark chapter 10, where we will pick up in just a few moments. And while you're getting there, I just want to take a moment of personal privilege to say thank you to each and every one of you for all of your love and support and prayers that you have extended to me and to my family over the last couple of weeks. As you know, Sarah tested positive for COVID and then Emerson tested positive for COVID. And last week, Bryant spiked a fever. And so the doctor's office told us to assume that he has um, developed the, the virus as well. And so um, as of filming this on Thursday, I'm still feeling well. The family is doing much better and we're just holding out and waiting for the end of our quarantine. So please continue to pray for us, for our health, and we are continuing to pray with and for you. I also just want to take a moment and say thank you to each and every one who participated last week and, and helped make Baptist Men's Day of 2021 so successful. It was such a blessing to my heart to be able to watch and, and to hear the testimonies of the men who are willing to step up and share about God's goodness in their life. And I love Baptist Men's Day each and every year because it's an opportunity for um, us to celebrate the fact that this, this gospel isn't something that's just true for those of us who carry the title pastor and who are in front uh, of you each and every week, but it's true of, of every man and, and woman in our congregation as well as that. And so thank you for an amazing Sunday morning last week. And Sunday was just continued to be great as uh, we celebrated not only Baptist Men's Day in the morning, but we celebrate Baptist Men's Day on Super Bowl Sunday each and every year. And last Sunday night was a spectacular Super Bowl. And last weekend, Tom Brady led the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to their second Super Bowl appearance. And then he led them in their second Super Bowl win. But for Tom Brady, that was not just his first or his second. It was actually his 10th, his 10th Super Bowl appearance in his career. And that's twice the number of John Elway, who's the next closest QB in history, who's made it to the Super Bowl five times. And not only was it his 10th appearance, it was Tom Brady's 10th Super Bowl victory, giving him three more victories than the next two closest quarterbacks, Joe Montana and Terry Bradshaw. And over the last week, the, the conversation has been that Tom Brady has sealed the notion that of professional quarterbacks, he is the GOAT which is the greatest of all times. And maybe some may debate that, but as I've been asking that question of what is it that we use to measure greatness, it's been heavy on my heart as I've been studying this passage of scripture. And when we ask that question, what is the measure of greatness? We often start examining performance or prominence or popularity or power. It's the athlete with the best stats. It's the business with the highest profit margin. It's the musician or the artist who has the largest number of Instagram followers. It's the politician who has the most political pull and power in Washington that we label as great. Even within the church, it's the largest congregations with the biggest budgets and missions offerings. It's the pastors with the hottest book deals or the most political pull within a denomination that are held up as examples of greatness that we're supposed to emulate. And we all have that innate desire to be great. There's a spark within each and every one of our hearts that longs to be known and to be admired and to be praised even. 
We like the trophies and we like the bonuses and we like the promotions and the acclaim that comes with success. But if we're not careful, our ambition can lead us away from God's standards and we will end up falling prey to the standards of the world and the patterns of power that we find in the world. And we have to be careful not to allow our ambition to run wild. Instead, we must constantly ask, as our passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning asks, how does the Lord measure greatness? Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 this morning. There, Mark writes, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. The son, the James, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for the time and the opportunity that we have to study your words, to hear your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that right now you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears and that you would speak into our lives the way that we have given way and given over to the, the patterns of power in this world and the, the standards of success of this earth. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for your grace and your mercy to be upon us, to show us a better way, to show us the path of Jesus Christ in humility and service this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. From the very beginning of this passage of Scripture, we see when it comes to this question of greatness that Jesus is the one who is displaying true greatness. From the very outset, Jesus displays true greatness. In the opening verses, we find that the disciples and the crowds are following Jesus on their way to Jerusalem, and they are both amazed and they're afraid. And the question that comes to my mind when I read that is, is to ask why. Why is it that they are amazed and afraid on this particular trip to Jerusalem? What's so different about it this time? And the answer is that this is the first time that Jesus is going to arrive in Jerusalem after accepting the declaration of the disciples that he is, in fact, the Christ. Jerusalem is the city of the king. And so they're all anticipating that this is the time that Jesus is finally going to come to Jerusalem and claim his throne and bring his kingdom. This is most likely what has them amazed. 
But what has them afraid? If you'll remember, since Peter's first declaration in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus has repeatedly been teaching plainly to the disciples that as the Messiah, he was going to be betrayed, he was going to be condemned, he was going to be killed, and then he was going to rise again three days later. And in verses 33 and 34 in this passage of scripture, Jesus reiterates that to his followers for the fourth and the final time in these verses, in these chapters. And this time he reveals almost everything of what's going to take place. Not only is he going to be betrayed by the Jewish leaders, but he's going to be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles who are going to humiliate him and who are going to kill him. I know it's been difficult over the last several weeks, but if you've at all been paying attention to international news, then maybe you've heard the name Alexei Navalny. If not, then uh, I want to share with you Alexei Navalny is the leader of the Russian opposition to Vladimir Putin and his regime in Russia. And recently, Navalny returned to Russia after spending nearly five months in Germany, recovering from an attempted assassination on his life by poisoning. And as soon as he landed in Russia, he was taken into custody by Russian officials, and he's going to be put on trial. Prior to arriving, though, he said this, Everyone is asking me if I am scared. I'm not afraid, he said. I feel completely fine walking toward the border control. I know that I will leave and go home because I'm right, and all the criminal cases against me are fabricated. His supporters and and even the crowds of the reporters knew that what was likely going to happen to Navalny is he's going to be arrested and he's going to be tried. And their reaction was fear on his behalf, but also awe of his courage. There's something inspiring about a man who marches resolutely to his to his fate, knowing that it might be unjust or even that it will be unjust, but hoping in something greater on the other side. Navalny might have been and might be misguided in his faith in the Russian justice system, but Jesus Christ was not misguided in his faith in his father. Jesus here is marching forward up to Jerusalem to the fate that is before him. And as he'll put it to James and John later in these verses, he knows the cup that he's going to have to drink. He knows the baptism with which he's going to be baptized. He's not merely facing humiliation at the hands of humans. Instead, he knows that he is going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath for sinners, and he is going to endure a baptism of suffering such as no man had experienced up to that point and no man has experienced since. And he did it with confidence, with faith, that on the other side of his suffering, that his father would would raise him up and that justice would prevail and that he would rise again from the grave in victory. Why would he do this? The answer comes for the very first time in Mark's gospel in verse 45. He says, in doing this, in going up and in suffering and in drinking the cup of God's wrath, he is giving his life as a ransom. A ransom is a price that must be paid to reclaim something that is lost. It's a price that has to be paid to reconcile a wrong or to free someone who's enslaved. But Jesus, we know, as the perfect Son of God, has committed no wrong and is bound to no master. And so his ransom is not a ransom for himself. Instead, his ransom, he says, is a ransom for the many. His suffering is the ransom necessary so that you and I might be freed from sin, which rules over us as the cruelest master, 
His suffering was the price necessary for all of our wrongs so that they might be made right and we might be forgiven. His death was the cost of our eternal life. What truer picture of greatness can there be than Jesus as he marches to Calvary for our sake? Therefore, we must look to Jesus. We have to believe on Jesus. We have to admire Jesus as the only true goat, the one who is in fact the greatest of all time. And when we fix our eyes on him and follow in his footsteps, we're going to learn to discern a better standard of greatness. And fixing our eyes on Jesus exposes the fact that unlike Jesus, worldly greatness is self-oriented. Each time that Jesus has proclaimed his impending suffering to his disciples, it has exposed some selfish motive and, and worldliness inside of the disciples and given Jesus an opportunity to train them up in the nature of true discipleship. The first time he confronted their sense of self-preservation, calling them to deny themselves and embrace the suffering that comes with discipleship. Next, he admonished their self-importance and challenged them to be willing to be the least and the last. And now Jesus is confronting their selfish ambitions. Not only did the disciples think highly of themselves, like all of us think highly of ourselves, they also want great things for themselves. We see this when James and John approach Jesus with a shocking brashness. They seem to sense that the time is short and the conflict is near and they want assurances before it's too late. They're no longer content to wrestle with the rest of the 12 over who is the greatest. And so they approach Jesus directly with a request. And that request is for positions of power, not behind him, like the rest of the disciples, like good disciples are meant to be, but instead beside him as his equals in glory. And Jesus rebukes them, telling them that they have no idea what it is that they're asking of him and challenging them that they are being driven instead by their sinful patterns of power. And that they're, they're, those are the patterns that they're used to seeing, but that's not the picture of power that Jesus is portraying right in front of them. And so James and John, though, they're not the only ones. They're just the quickest ones to get to Jesus with this. The fact that the rest of the disciples are indignant with them because of their request of Jesus exposes the fact that their hearts are in the exact same place. And so Jesus brought, brings them all together and he rebukes them. He rebukes them for their selfishness and their ambition. You know, I have a tendency in my sin sometimes to act like a big baby. When I'm not getting my way or things aren't, aren't going right, then I'll throw temper tantrums and I'll pout and, and I'll end up making my family miserable. And all it is is just a sinful attempt to manipulate circumstances and everyone else around me. And it's every bit as sinful as if I was screaming and yelling at them or threatening them with violence. And it's in those moments that I need a rebuke. I need a swift kick in the pants. And though I should never put her in that position, those are the places and the times when Sarah has to step up and say, you got to stop pouting around like a child and act your age. That's exactly what Jesus does to the disciples here. He tells them that in their selfish pursuit of power, they're not acting like the people of God, but instead they're acting like heathen Gentiles. Bringing up the Gentiles here and comparing them to how the Gentiles rule their people is not a compliment. 
The Romans were hated by the Jewish people in that day. And as James will later point out in his letter, the rich were oppressors of the poor. So Jesus is telling the disciples that they are no better than these. And unfortunately, just as they're no better, you and I are no better either. Unfortunately, the worldly standards of greatness rarely stop at the thresholds of our homes or even of our churches. We grind away in our lives seeking the next promotion or the next raise. We live for accolades and for championships, constantly pushing our children to excel for trophies and grades and and scholarships. And when we come to church, our prayer requests are often dominated by earthly desires and ambitions for health and prosperity and continued political power. If we were to survey churches, what we would probably find both locally and nationally is that the positions of power and influence in the church are held by individuals who match the world's measures and standards of success. They're the ones who are prosperous and popular and powerful. And this is a pattern that we have to see inside of ourselves and and see inside of our communities. And we have to rebuke and we have to confess and we have to turn from. We have to repent of these sinful attitudes. And we have to actively turn away from them and from the ways that we allow our selfish ambitions to drive us away from God's standard of greatness and towards a worldly standard of greatness. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ by turning away from the standards of the world, we'll see that like Jesus, true greatness is service-oriented. Unlike worldly greatness, which is self-oriented, true greatness, kingdom greatness, is service-oriented. God's standard of greatness is radically different from that of the world. Unlike the Gentiles who strive to lord over and dominate others in their greatness, the disciples are called by Jesus Christ to serve others in humility. This is the example set by Jesus Christ, who came, as he said, not to be served, but to serve. What this passage of scripture teaches us more than anything else is that greatness in the kingdom of God is not determined by who or how you rule, but by who and how you serve. Jesus tells the disciples that if they want to be great, they have to be servants. If they want to be first, they have to be slaves. And in this, he summarizes the theme of his discipleship training throughout this whole section of the Gospel of Mark. True disciples are those who deny themselves, those who embrace sacrifice and suffering, those who seek to be the least of all and the servant of all. Jesus has called the disciples to embrace and even become like children. And now in this passage of scripture, he calls us to become like servants and slaves. Who is more invisible and seemingly powerful, powerless in our society than these? You know, maybe it's been a while since you've been out to eat because of the coronavirus and quarantining and everything else, but can you even remember the, the name of your last waiter or waitress at the restaurant? What about the busboy? What about the parking attendant at the hospital? What about the custodian at your office or the groundskeeper or the greeters at at a business or a church? These are the people that we easily ignore when their job is going great and they're doing their job well. But as as soon as they stumble, as soon as they fail, they're the ones that we criticize the most. Our society is quick to demand respect and to demand honor for ourselves and for those that we value. But that's not the pattern that we see of Jesus Christ. 
We've already established that he is the goat, the greatest of all time, the incarnate son of God. Who deserved respect and honor more than him? But he didn't grasp it. He didn't take it. He didn't demand it for himself. Instead, he marched to Zion where he drank the cup of wrath that belonged to somebody else, where he was baptized in the suffering that he didn't deserve for the sake of serving others. This is greatness. This is the greatness that Jesus calls us into today. It's a greatness that is defined by our own cup of purification that comes at the cost of Jesus Christ. It's a greatness defined by a baptism of suffering as we commit ourselves to values and priorities that are going to bring us into conflict with the world. It's a greatness that's not defined by upward mobility, but instead by downward humility and outward service. It's a greatness that brings others in, that builds others up, and sends others out better than we found them. That's discipleship. That's the relationship, and that's the path that Jesus is calling every single one of us to today right now. So my question is, how do you need to respond to his call into service today? How are you allowing your ambition or your position at work to lead you to take others for granted? How do you need to put that aside and instead find ways that you can serve others in the workplace? Husbands, fathers, Are you lording over your family like a Gentile as the head of the household, expecting everybody to serve at your whim and to please you? Or instead, are you committed to be the biggest servant in your house of all? Or maybe you're over-interpreting Jesus's command and Jesus is teaching here that he came not to be served, but to serve. And you're in that place where I sometimes find myself where you're refusing to let anybody serve you. That's a pride and an arrogance that takes this in the opposite direction way too far and something that needs to be repented of and turned from so that we can love one another and serve one another. Brothers and sisters, in the end, there won't be any championship rings or nation states or church buildings because all of that is going to be burned away in the purifying fire of God's holy presence And the only goat, the greatest of all time, that's going to be left standing is the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain for your sins and mine, Jesus Christ. And that means the only question that matters this morning is, will you be with him or will you be against him? Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior who's paid the ransom for your sin that you might be adopted into God's everlasting forever family? If not, then I would invite you today to hear how Jesus Christ served you by bearing your sins in his body on the tree, that you might be forgiven, that you might be given a hope and a future that you can never earn with all of your acts of righteousness. I invite you this morning, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Cry out to him with a simple prayer that asks for forgiveness and surrenders your life to him. And he will answer your prayer and he will forgive you of your sins and he will embrace you in his family and he will wipe your slate clean and he will push a factory reset on your life and you will be born anew in the power of the Spirit in your life. If you believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then my question to you is, are you walking in his footsteps along the path of discipleship that he walked before you? 
making sacrifice and suffering and service priorities in your life? Or are you instead still following after the patterns of the world? If so, I would invite you to repent, to turn from that way of living and instead surrender yourself fresh and new to Jesus Christ, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has forgiven all of that and that he has empowered you for all that you need to live this life in him because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And how can you commit today to walk away, not living a life of selfish ambition, but instead ready to serve for the sake of the kingdom in the name of Jesus Christ? How do you need to respond to Jesus' call to service today, to discipleship today? I'd invite you, if you would, to take a moment and bow your heads and close your eyes and spend a moment in God's presence, praying and asking the Holy Spirit to lead you in the best way that you need to respond. And we're going to have some deacons step into the back to be able to speak with you and pray with you in a moment. If you have questions about salvation and a relationship with Jesus Christ, or you need help in finding ways that you can serve others in this season, then we would love to talk with you more. And in a moment, Pastor Mike is going to come and lead us in a time of response. And I'd invite you to respond as Jesus and the Holy Spirit leads you today. So God bless you, Spring Creek, and I look forward to being back with you soon.